Well, why don't we begin? Um, let's pray. Gracious Father, for uh, for this morning, for your word, um, especially for your work, Lord, um, for all that you've done to exchange uh, your righteousness for our sin, for uh, uh, from what you've given us freely, from our boundedness, from everything that you have uh, done for us and not in spite of us. We give you great and humble thanks. Open now this, this time, uh, this half hour or so, this hour, to, uh, to your gracious hand and uh, be with us now and turn it to you so that it may uh, grow and increase 30, 60, or 100-fold. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Drew. Um, and if you all want to get a Bible or if you got one on your phone or one of the ones that um, uh, we're happy to do that, uh, we've got to, we're going to be in and out of some scriptures, or at least that's the hope uh, today. Um, the great exchange. What, what, what do I mean by this? Uh, one of the s- central ideas in uh, you might call the Christian tradition is this idea of the great exchange, or what sometimes is called the happy exchange or the joyous exchange. The central idea, and if you're following along and you're systematic handbook. This would be under the, the context of atonement. If you want to know that. Um, the word atone uh, was, was created uh, by William Tyndale, I'm almost positive, uh, as, a, as, a, as not really a compound word, but in order to describe the effect of what happens when God reconciles us with his righteousness uh, and replaces or exchanges his righteousness for our sin. And the, the reconciled relationship that is means that we are now at one with the Father. And that's where we get the word atone. Um, so atonement is at one How are we made at one with something that is utterly different from us and something that is constitutionally, that as we are constitutionally incapable of being made at one with? Um, they would say that reading the scripture the way that Tyndale did, that I would, I think most of us would, That'd be the equivalent of, um, I'll get into my, I have to remember my fifth grade, when you get a, a magnet, you know, with a negative pole and you're trying to put on there with a negative pole, you know, it just won't go. You can't make it at one. There's just constitute, there's their property that's in those magnets where the two poles, which are the same, you can do all you want and it's not going to happen which somebody should figure out how to make the perpetual motion machine out of this. I figured this out in fifth grade. I was like, well, then just get that thing where it needs an initial sort of jolt and, and then figure out how to just make it keep going forever. And it seems like there's no friction. Why doesn't that work? And I still don't know the answer to that. But maybe Perry, at Fluid Engineering, can figure this out for us, and we can all share the million. One million dollars. So anyway, I digress. Um, uh, constitutionally unable to be at one with something utterly different, utterly righteous, utterly pure, utterly God, and we are not. Um, that's the problem. And so the great exchange is the way it describes uh, from the very beginning, and we'll look at that from Genesis 2, Genesis 3, all the way through the scripture of what God has done in order to effect a change, in order to exchange uh what we are with who he is in order to make the at one possible. How do we describe this? Things like he took uh, probably the, the, the classic single verse, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
um, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Hey, Melanie. Um, to take something that we are not righteous, his righteousness, his justness, his, um, his very being, uh, and to take something that we are sinful uh, and then to exchange those two things. Or it says a lot of other ways, something like he took um, uh, his riches and exchanged it for our poverty so that though um, we are poor, we might become rich. Or we take takes our rags and he replaces them with his robes. Or he takes our alienation and he replaces it with his nearness to the Father. All those different ways, every single one of them is this idea of exchange. And so I just want to sort of this week and next, a short series, um, kind of look at that. More weighted in the Old Testament this week, more weighted in the New Testament next week. It's not going to be a strict division on that at all. Um, uh, but that's that's more of the idea, and then I, I hope to get to the to the idea of so what? Why does that matter? Um, what does it matter that Christ, who is our substitute, and that's where again, if you're following in your book, uh, this is what's called the penal substitutionary form of atonement. Um, that Christ, our substitute, that now what He is and what we were not, He's become for us something that we could not be, so that we might now. Be something that we actually are. I know that's weird verbiage, but that's how it happens. Christ substitutes himself for us. So with all that, that's kind of the preface. That's the idea of an exchange. Um, and we're going to work up to probably one of the great examples of that in literature at the end of Tale of Two Cities. Um, as a, what is it, Sidney Carton exchanges himself for Charles Darnay. Um, at the end of A Tale of Two Cities. So that's where we're hoping to go. Any thoughts before we even begin? Um, that's all, just to kind of get into the rhythm of things and let people get settled. Any questions? Well, with that, if you want to, uh, you can look into your, uh, turn your scriptures, and let's just go to the beginning. Um, uh, there, let me find my list. Um, Genesis 2, 15. Genesis 2, Genesis 1 and 2, both of them are the creation stories. And so here's God right at the beginning making Adam and Eve, uh, Adam in this instance. And it says, The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. So right here at the beginning, it's laid out for us that Christ, um, that there's a, a law, not Christ, not yet, um, that there is a law and that there is a penalty for the law. Um, that penalty is death, um, that Christ is coming uh, to, no, that's not true yet. I want to stay out. We're going to see that in Genesis 3, uh, that there is an infraction. Uh, when an infraction occurs, there's going to be a wage that's paid, um, as Paul would pick it up and say the wages of sin is death. Um, this idea of death uh, uh, being the, the consequence for the breaking of what the Bible would in a few moments call shalom. We've heard that word shalom before. Most of us would even know it's a Hebrew word, which means peace. But we have to stop and appreciate exactly what it means. It's not simply the absence of conflict. There's something much more than that. You think pre-fall garden and you probably approach shalom. This is what Isaiah will describe when he says something like um, the lion and the lamb lying down together. We'll hear these things at Advent. Advent talks about 
as Christ will come again, shalom, reigning again. The third reign will be a reign of shalom, of peace, where things will now be as they were always meant to be. And whatever that looks like, we don't have a lot. We have it in metaphor, mostly, uh, of, a, of a peacefulness where all creation now, which, uh, which, which, which now in these last days groans as in the pains of childbirth, waiting that pregnant pause, waiting for the redemption uh, or for the revelation of the sons of God. Then, when Shalom returns, this place of peace, this place of order, this place of, of uh, where the magnets line up and everything is okay, it's a pervasive okayness. Everything and all manner of things is well. I think it's Teresa of Avila. Um, uh, that all things are Shalom. Because what happens after this infraction is laid out where there is a place where we realize that um, uh, if and as the tr- this, uh, this, this fruit is eaten, I'm not going to get into all that, why God would do all that, that there's a, uh, a consequence, and that's death. But before that is shalom. Then we turn just over to the next part. And this is really, this might be the verse when I was thinking about this. I think it was the Germany trip that we were, some of us were on this summer. And it was this verse, strangely enough, which made me think of all this. Because I kind of hit a pause and I was like, I've never thought of it in quite that way. Over here, um, in 321, uh, what's happened, um, Adam and Eve uh, have eaten the apple. Uh, the very beginning, the, the serpent, the, the most crafty of all the creatures that God had made, turns to Eve and says, did God really say? And he plants the fall right there at the beginning, this, this doubt and this disbelief. Uh, and that Eve turns and eats the apple, and then before her eyes are open, she turns, it says, and hands the apple to Adam. He's right there, complicit, and he eats, and then both of their eyes were opened, uh, and they were now, they recognize that they were naked, and they were ashamed of their nakedness, so that's going to be part of the exchange. They're naked and ashamed. And then the curses come, Eve's curse, you shall now have have pain in your labor and your desire will be for your husband, but his desire will be for something else. And Adam, you'll work and toil, but it'll be sweat and you know, bristles and thorns and all that. And in the middle of all of this um, consequence of, of the breaking of shalom, the Lord says this, uh, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And here's what hit me a little bit. If it was even even more than just, just a nice metaphor, something like the lion and the lamb lying down together, and there really was shalom, uh, and the Lord God had made everything, and there was not anything that was made with which he was not very well pleased. The lion and the lamb sitting together, I mean, even right down to the basic part that it's not sort of the evolutionary chain where you know predator prey and going up the thing and it's good to be on top etc and so forth that there really is this place of no death of uh, that death which is an enemy of God right down to his very created order and now what did he do because Adam and Eve the pinnacle of his creation made in a whole different order as Psalm 8 would say just below the, the, the level of angels but the one upon whom all creation is waiting for the revelation of the the sons of God. In order to be gracious to them, to give them something which they did not deserve, 
not just withholding uh, uh, punishment, that's mercy, but giving them the opposite, because they deserve death here. It's the first instance of blood. Because what did he do? Adam didn't go kill a deer and make for himself breaches. That's what a, I won't tell you that story. The Lord God did it. The Lord God took his creation and he unmade it. He started to unmake the shalom. He took that weight, that pathos on himself. He begins to suffer. That's a close word there. Uh, and he takes the creation, which was very good, and he starts to make it not good. Malediction begins to reign. And the Lord God shed blood by killing animals. Because he made garments of skin, not of fig leaves, of skin. And he said, there will be blood. The prefigurement, obviously, of the cross. There will be blood. And now he took mercy and made an act of grace. And he covered their nakedness. And he began to exchange their nakedness with his clothing. And he began to exchange their shame with something that would one day again be shalom, would one day again be peace. As Ephesians 2 will say, uh, for Christ himself is our peace, our shalom, our offering which now says everything and all manner of things is again well. Peace, lion and lamb together. So that's just the first deposit. Right here at the very beginning, the exchange begins to happen. What is he exchanging? Their nakedness for clothing. And of course, how was Christ crucified? Also struck me this summer. Uh, we normally see pictures of the crucifixion how? Two things. And I'm kind of in this vein. A loincloth. He would have been absolutely, completely uh, without clothes. I can almost not say that our Lord would have been hung naked on a tree. That's exactly what he would have been. And it's just, even now, it just feels so wrong. And he was. And then also, how do we normally see it? He's up a little bit, right? That's a total waste. How high off the ground do you have to be in order to be crucified? An inch? <laughs> Two inches? Three inches? He would have been right here. And they would have been right here. And he would have been naked and bleeding and breathing and sweating. And it would have been very visceral. It would have been all over the place. And that's exactly the condition that he willingly went to in order to exchange shalom and peace. That close. It's very gripping. Um, so, right here at the beginning, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, we even see the first wave, what will become the cross. Thoughts, questions, reactions? A little bit emotional? I mean, it, does, it gets me a little bit. It does. Kind of stir something up. Evokes is probably the right word. Calls something out. Yeah, Lee? Yeah, that's earlier. Um, they made leaves. They covered themselves. Um, somebody see that? Verse 7. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Because that's what you hear more about. Yeah. Is the leaves versus the skin, but then everybody talks about blood. And I guess with children, it's easier to say. I don't know why. I guess that's what I was thinking. Yeah. So, There's so much focus on the leaves. Right. There's not so much focus on the skin, really. I mean, at least from what I sure, sure, hear sure. about it. But then the blood is so important that 
we're not talking about allies. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's a very good point. So, Charles, were you going to say something? Because well, I'm about so, to let the cat yeah, out of the bag. Out of the garden. Uh, obviously, there's plenty of big trees in the garden. <laughs> there might not be big trees on the road out of the garden. These are going to need something a little more durable than big trees. So that's yeah, more durable. Yeah. Um, more uh, yeah, more costly um, because grace it ne- always needs to be remembered. Well, two things. Uh, where is this going? You know, it's important for me to make sure. Because sometimes I think I'll I'll really lead up to a coup de grace, you know, a stroke of grace at the end, and sort of really get them at the you know, right time, and it never gets it. So, so what is all this about? This great exchange, this substitution. We need a substitute. That's the punchline. We have to have it. Um, the other ideas of atonement, which all have merit, but they're definitely on a grade. You know, example, victor, and then atonement of a of substitution. We 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 don't need an example. It's helpful, but we don't need it. You know, classic illustration you normally hear of you know the lifeguard and all that stuff. If you're out there drowning, do you need an example? <laughs> He's like. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. You're doing really great. Just keep this and keep going. It's like, no, get in here before me. Don't be with me. I don't need you with me right now. I'm dead. I'm dying. You know, do something else. So the example is not enough. Uh, the victor is not enough. Christ is a victory over sin and death and the world, the flesh, all those things. That's, that gets much closer, and that's true, but it leaves us out. What about now? What about uh, uh, that sense of shalom? Is it purely pie in the sky, or can it be something else that begins to to mark my steps in this life? Um, we don't just need a victor to be able to say, like, I know these next 60 years are going to be a slog, but just slog. You know, that's not the word that I want to give you or that I want you to give me. We need something more than that. A substitute. Somebody that actually is able to take what I'm not and give me what I am. Give me something that I need. And we're going to get to that. And what happens, what that feels like in a, with, with Dickens' example, and we'll see that with some other places. This need for a substitute. Um, for Adam and Eve leaving, they made their best attempt and so they took what they could, and that was, you know, fig leaves, as we normally call it. And Christ went well beyond that. Charles is a good point. Uh, it made him something durable, but very costly. Because grace, which is freely given, is not free. It cost God much. Obvious. Well, it's not obvious because we get that we get that wrong a lot. Um, this legal fiction, this idea that God just uh, wink, wink. Well, here we'll just kind of take care of all that sin stuff, and not really. Uh, uh, not really account for it. Well, here he's accounting for it right here in Genesis 20, 3.20. And the Lord God made for them skins. It hurt him already. It's costing God already. So with that, Luther, um, I didn't even put it together, but Reformation Sunday, nice day to do all this. Well, he brought this forward the first, the most clear time, and then he referred back to it. Luther, he didn't make up the great exchange. 
they did sort of refocus it. Um, it was definitely present in the other, the earlier writers, whether it was Augustine or Athanasius. I'm reading some of him right now and some other things. And they, they use the word, and it's all over. But Luther did reform the church and bring this central idea of the scripture back in front of the church, um, calling it the happy or the great exchange. And he says this. Um, let me see where I want to pick up. Uh, you know, he's going to move towards a wedding analogy, which is what I want to really just to let us um, think about. Uh, Christ and the soul became one flesh, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. And if they are one flesh and there is then between them a true marriage, indeed the most perfect of all marriages, since human marriages are but poor examples of this one true marriage, it follows that everything they have, everything that they have, they hold in common as good as well as evil. Accordingly, the believing soul can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has through, uh, as though it were his own. And whatever the soul has, Christ claims as his own. And he says this about that. So let me read that again because I didn't read it well. Here's the exchange. Accordingly, the believing soul can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has as though it were its own. That's us. And whatever the soul has, Christ claims as were his own. Sin. Let us compare these, and we shall see the inestimable benefits. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them, and sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's, and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives, his, if he gives her his body and very self... How shall, he not all, how shall he not give her all that is his? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not also take all that is hers? So then the prophet Hosea, we'll read that, and then we'll look at Ephesians 5, and it'll probably take us to, uh, um, to, uh, to Dickens. Hosea, some of you all know this, one of the most striking stories in the, uh, the Old Testament, um, the command of God, uh, to Hosea to take Gomer, um, whether she's a prostitute or not, she's at least uh, 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 described as a wife of whoredom. It's a very abrupt. Um, this idea of of uh, of taking a wife, taking a husband, taking a spouse, having that sense of union where each becomes to the other a part of the other bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, um, as Adam would say of Eve, as Eve was taken from Adam. All that sense of union. Paul is going to want to recast that back in Ephesians 5, which we'll read and, uh, and think about this exchange. But here, let's read Hosea 1 and then part of uh, 2 and maybe 3. We'll see. And the word of the Lord, this is 1-1. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, which is a form of, of Yeshua, which is, of course, the form of Joshua, Jesus, the one who saves. And so they all have that same echo. And the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Again, why do we, what's the point of all that? Sometimes there's meaning, when the, uh, especially the Old Testament marks those sorts of things, but that's giving us a date. That just lends historicity. It's just saying... On December 7th, 1941, at 6.03 a.m., you know, uh, uh, the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of Hordom and have children of Hordom. 
for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. What's the allusion here? Um, this first child, the son who uh, the Lord is going to name three children, the first one is named Jezreel. And the first Kings 21 is likely the illusion where evil King Ahab, king of Israel, uh, took a faithful man, um, Nebaioth, I think was his name. I remember that story. Nebaioth, uh, I have a note here somewhere. Naboth, um, uh, who did not sell uh, Ahab a vineyard. Uh, because it was the it was an, it was an inheritance of his fathers, and he wanted to be faithful to the inheritance of his fathers that were given to him by God alone. And so Naboth was faithful. Ahab said, "I can't take it." His wife says, "Yes, you can. You're the king." He says, "No, I can't." And you get all that going on. Uh, he says, "I'll take care of it." The wife does, and she tells the the leaders to go and set it up, kind of like an Uzziah thing, where he sets Naboth up for a, for a murder and he dies and he's able to take it and then of course the blood is spilled there in the valley of Jezreel as the Lord um, takes vengeance upon evil king Ahab and so that's this idea that uh, there will be blood vengeance is mine says the Lord I take this stuff very seriously um, and here I want to make a living parable remember December 7th 1941 it's saying this actually happened I want you to go and take a wife and then you're going to have children, and I'm going to name them, or at least she is. It's going to be some ambiguity of whether or not the other two are his or not. Uh, the first one is named Jezreel, just to remember the, the bloody, the bloodbath that was Jezreel. And the second child comes, uh, and she conceived again. doesn't say to him, maybe it's somebody else being a wife of Hortum, um, not necessarily Hosea's, and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, or Lo Rahama. Uh, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And then she weaned no mercy, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, or Loami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now that phrase, not my people, Exodus talks about you are my people and I am your God 17, 18, 20 times, something like that. And so this is a definite echo. All that, no more. Uh, so then he comes over in, uh, in 2.14 after all this is, uh, has been spoken. Uh, now the covenant is reestablished. What I want you to listen for is the work of the Lord being spoken and affected by the phrase, I will. The Lord's will being sort of for, not forecast, just actually done. When he says, I will, and I will, and I will, and I will. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. This is now Gomer, which is also Israel, which means it's us, the unfaithful us. And speak tenderly to her. And therefore, I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will I call you my Baal, 
for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day, and with the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war in the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer. I will answer the heavens. And they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people you are my people and he shall say you are my God and that's exactly what first Peter picks up when he talks about the royal priesthood a holy nation uh, you once were not a people and now you are a people you once did not have mercy and you now have received mercy now as the great exchange you once who were far away have been brought near you once had nothing, and now you have everything. You once were not, and now you are. As the Lord speaks, so he does. The exchange of Hosea. Take for yourself a wife of infidelity, of unfaithfulness, of whoredom, the leprous bride, the whore that is the church. Us, us, unfaithful, uh, has now been made clean by God himself. We'll look at Ephesians 5 next week just for time. Um, could look at Isaiah 53, the great suffering servant, which you read every, um, we're not going to for time, but if you want to at home, the suffering servant passage um, quoted maybe more often than any other single chapter. I don't know that. Um, in the New Testament, this is, uh, uh, it was the Lord's will to crush him. Um, he will, he's the one who surely who bore our iniquities and carried our sorrows. Uh, for the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Why? Because we need a substitute. And the suffering servant, the one who now is uh, and who was and who is to come, has borne that for us. Um, and all that leads to this uh, part of where, where we see it now in a story, um, Charles Dickens' story. So I want to read that, and that's how we're going to sort of end it. But this idea of the exchange, it's everywhere. It's almost almost on every page of scripture it's a thorough narrative it's a meta narrative if you want to call it that where it's again and again and again played out in so many of the stories of uh, Genesis 22 um, with uh, with Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac you remember you know dad where's the uh, we're going up to do a sacrifice, right? Yes son that's what we're doing three days we're walking right We're going up Mount Moriah that's right son. Where's the lamb? The Lord will provide a lamb, son. And they get up. You know, Isaac's no fool. He's looking around. A lamb here. I wonder when that happened. When did he start to realize, like, damn, I'm the lamb. And he gets up, and Abraham's got it. I mean, right there, you know, holding the knife right above the throat. Some great art. You know, just seeing his face, just pushing like that. Can you imagine? And then the Lord speaks and says, Abraham, hold your hand. Can you imagine how his heart leapt? <laughs> he looks over there. Remember what he promised? What did he promise? The Lord will provide a what? A lamb. A lamb. You know what it says? He looked over there, and what was caught in the thicket? A ram. 
Almost, right? Good enough then, not good enough forever. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And all of this, hold your hand. And the Lord did not hold his hand. And he took the Lamb of God, his son, his only son. Same language of Genesis 22. And he put him on the tree. Right here, you know, one inch is all that's needed. Took everything that he was not and put all of us on that. Um, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Uh, and he bore it. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all so that we might become at one the righteousness of God. So Charles Dickens took all that. Um, Dickens is a funny guy. I don't know that much about him. A little bit of a, a lot of a deist, but he uh, he knew a good plot line when he saw it. And he says this will work. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit. The end of a of a of a tale of two cities. Um, Charles Dunn. Some of y'all will know this story much better than I. It's been a long time since I've read the whole novel. Um, Charles Darnay, uh, noble aristocrat. Um, in the uh, the time of the French Revolution, somebody correct me where I'm wrong. I will not be offended. Uh, uh, who made enemies, and so he's being sentenced to death. The guillotine, um, one of the 52 that's in in this part of the story. Uh, but then, uh, and he and Sidney Carton, who's an attorney, sort of an alcoholic, ne'er do well, always almost just enough, almost almost enough, but not quite. You know that kind of guy. Um, they fall in love with the same woman, Lucy, I think is her name. Uh, Darnay wins her, and Sidney Carton, out of love for Lucy, unrequited love, because she does not love him, but he loves her. So there's a little bit of Hosea, Gomer. Um, but he loves her, and he says, I can do something about this. And he has a hatch of a plan, because they look very similar, Carton and Darnay do. Darnay is in prison awaiting his execution. And uh, and Sidney Carton sneaks in, calls in a favor, uh, and goes in in the exchange. You'll even hear um, uh, Dickens use that word, and exchanges all of his clothes. So remember, our rags for his, his robes says, here, take off your boots, take off your scarf, undo your hair, wear my, um, my uh, whatever it is that men wore back there to hold your hair back. Um, uh, all that, and they, they swap places, and then Carton's going to drug him so that uh, the guards now take out Darnay, who looks like Carton, so that Carton, who now looks like Darnay, can die in Carton's place for the love of his bride. So here's the story. Of all the people on earth, you least expected to see me, Darnay said. I could not believe it to be you. I can scarcely believe it now. Um, you are not, the apprehension suddenly came into his mind, a, a prisoner. That's Darnay speaking to Carton. No, I'm accidentally possessed of power over one of the keepers here, and in virtue of it, I stand before you. I come from her, your wife, dear Darnay. The prisoner wrung his hand. I bring you a request from her. What is it? A most earnest, pressing, and empathic entreaty addressed to you in the most pathetic tones of the voice so dear to you that you will well remember prisoner turned his face partly aside. You have no time to ask me why I bring it or what it means. I have no time to tell you. You must comply with it. Take off those boots you wear and draw on these of mine. There was a chair against the wall of the cell behind the prisoner. Carton pressing forward 
had already with the speed of lightning gotten him down to it and stood over him barefoot. Draw on these boots of mine. Put your hands to them. You will uh, put your will to them. Quick. Carton, there is no escaping from this place. It can never be done. You will only die with me. It is madness. It would be madness if I asked you to escape. But do I? When I ask you to pass out of that door, tell me it is madness and remain here. Change that cravat of this for mine, that coat of this for mine. While you do it, let me take the ribbon from your hair and shake out your hair like this of mine. With wonderful quickness and with the strength both of will and action, that appeared quite supernatural. He forced all of these changes upon him. The prisoner was like a young child in his hands. Carton, dear Carton, it is madness. It cannot be accomplished. It can never be done. It, is, it has been attempted and has always failed. I implore you, do not add your death to this bitterness of mine. He still thinks he wants to sneak him out. Do I ask you, dear Darnay, to pass the door? And they go on. He has him write down several things. And uh, what Carton, what Darnay does not know is that Sidney Carton is now bringing out ether or something like that, and he's starting to drug him. And so he finally passes out. Carton's hand moves back upon his breast no more, and the prisoner sprang up with a reproachful look, but Carton's hand was close and firm in his nostrils, and Carton's hand, uh, left arm, caught him around the waist. For a few seconds, he faintly struggled with the man who had come to lay down his life for him, but with a minute or so, he stretched. He was stretched out insensible on the ground. And so now... Darnay, looking like Sidney Carton, is taken out, and Carton, looking like Darnay, is left in. And he's going to meet a, uh, a young girl, a seamstress, um, uh, the innocence of the guilty, it's us, uh, who now is going to be the only one who recognizes that you're not the man. You're actually someone else. And the power of a substitute, even a substitute that is not God, <laughs> that is just a man, begins to take hold. This place of example actually has power. And the last thing on earth that... Uh, 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 here's how Dickens picks up the, the description of, of, of the seamstress and Sidney Carton. As the last thing on earth that his, Carton's heart, was to warm and soften to, it warmed and softened to this pitiable girl. I heard you were released, Citizen Evermond, still thinking it was Darnay, and I hoped it was true. It was, but I was taken again and condemned. But if I may ride with you, will you let me hold your hand? I am not afraid, but I am little, weak, little and weak, and it will give me more courage. And as the patient eyes were lifted to his face, he saw a sudden doubt in them, and then astonishment. She's realizing who it is. And he pressed his work-worn, hunger-worn young fingers and touched his lips. Are you dying for him? She whispered. And his wife and his child. Yes. Hush. Oh, will you let me hold your brave hand, stranger? Hush. Yes, my poor sister. To the last. And they carry over here to the very end. And this is how they uh, this is how they die. Um, they remain hand in hand all the way to the guillotine. There's 52 of them. They're somewhere in the middle, and uh, each of them march. And there's yelling and screaming all around. A lot of it's the invective towards Darnay, the, the, the aristocrat who's going to die. But of course, it's not Darnay, it's Carton. But the two of them are fixed on each other, this young seamstress and, uh, and Sidney Carton, who's come to die for another man. And she kisses his lips, and he kisses hers, and they solemnly bless each other. The spare hand does not tremble as he releases it. They finally release hands. And nothing worse than a sweet, bright constancy is in her patient face. 
and she goes next before him, is gone. The knitting woman count 22. She's the 22nd one to die out of these 52. And then Dickens comes in, not so subtle. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Exchange. And the murmuring of the many voices, the upturning of many faces, the pressing on of many footsteps on the outskirts of the crowd, so that it swells forward in a mass, like one great heave of water, all flashes away. 23. He dies. So with that, let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, in this exchange, your life, uh, your death for our life, for our eternal life, hidden in you. You are the resurrection and the life. Those those of us who believe in you shall never die. In your death, we find our life. In your death, death itself finds its death. Come now and be with us and stir our hearts, our timid hearts, to give it courage to believe this, our very hope, our life, that you who did not spare his own son would now give us so much more. We pray humbly to receive that grace, Lord, so that we may yet live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you all next week.